entering the Freedom Hut. Trump goes on a pardon of Palooza. He has decided to pardon Bernie Carrick. Blagojevich gets a commutation. The libs are freaking out, of course. We'll also talk about their concerns of a Trump regime. He's now an authoritarian, they say. And Sanders versus Bloomberg. We'll dive into that. And what does restricted immigration mean for wages of working people? Got quite a show coming up. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One Make no mistake. America, great. you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Yes, uh, we have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevic. He served eight years in jail. A long time, and uh, I watched his wife on television. Uh, I don't know him very well. I met him a couple of times. He was on for a short while of The Apprentice years ago. Uh, seemed like a very nice person. Don't know him, but he uh, served eight years in jail. There's a long time to go. Many people disagree with the sentence. He's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. Uh, it was a prosecution by... The same people, Comey, Fitzpatrick, the same group, uh, very far from his children. Uh, they're growing older. They're going to high school now, and they rarely get to see their father outside of an orange uniform. I saw that, and I did commute his sentence. So he'll be able to go back home with his family after serving eight years in jail. That was a tremendously powerful, ridiculous sentence, in my opinion. Blago is free. And the Buck Sexton Show is with you now. Thank you so much, team, for being here. The president decided to shift around the news cycle quite a bit yesterday and had these uh, these pardons and commutations. The most notable ones, of course, former governor of Illinois, Rod Blagojevich, and also former NYPD commissioner, Bernie Carrick, who we've had here on the show. I know Bernie's a good guy. Uh, they they received a part a commutation and a pardon, respectively. So commutation just means that you get a lesser. The president uses it's effectively a presidential leniency. So you can get out of prison right away or they can even just reduce the sentence. Uh, and a pardon means that effectively all of your rights are restored and you are no longer legally speaking considered to be a felon, uh, someone who has been convicted of a crime. And the president used that for Bernie Carrick. Now, this is very interesting because these are two individuals who I think everyone more or less agrees uh, broke the law. But they're individuals who were treated very harshly by the justice system. And Blagojevich is a Democrat. I mean, for Blagojevich to get, I think it was 14 years as a federal sentence, he served eight of it. And when you, you got to keep in mind, that's about what Al Capone got for tax evasion. I think Al Capone got uh, somewhere in the 12 or 13 year range. OK, the most notorious gangster in America, the 1920s, 1930s, responsible for racketeering, murders, prostitution, gambling, all this stuff. Right. You know, perhaps most famous for that scene in The Untouchables where he walks around the table with a baseball bat. So Rob Blagojevich got eight, he served eight years in federal prison. That's a long time. It's longer than people often serve for violent crimes, including sexual assaults. That's a long time. And Trump is just like, look, I've heard from people that it's time to let Blago out. And he was treated very he was treated very harshly. 
and he decided to use his presidential power, and the libs are losing their minds about this. The libs are doing what they always do. See, this is part of the genius of Trump. He brings the other side. He induces the other side to expose themselves for who they really are. Let me tell you what I mean by this. For the last week or so, the libs have been in this frenzy about how the attorney general responded to Trump or Trump intervened in a criminal case and that has destroyed our confidence in the justice system about Roger Stone's sentencing request, not even his actual sentencing, just what the government says, hey, we think he should get X. The judge could say, yeah, whatever, a lot more or a lot less. Judges do that all the time. But it did seem harsh to anyone who's being fair and honest about this. It did seem harsh for Roger Stone to get a seven to nine year request. It looked like grandstanding by those federal prosecutors. But what we've heard from the Democrats and the Democrat corporate media for the last week or so is that Trump has ruined the impartiality of the justice system with this, that, and that Attorney General Barr must resign. This is what we've been told. And last night, there were stories breaking about how the attorney general, according to sources in The Washington Post and the Associated Press, the attorney general was on the brink of offering his resignation if Trump doesn't stop the tweets. Now, President Trump admitted yesterday that he is making life a little harder for his attorney general with these tweets. And he is. And Barr is a wartime consigliere during a period of unprecedented weaponization of the bureaucracy by the Democrats. So Barr would be I have never said this really about anybody from the Trump administration, um, at least not in recent memory, that they would be a loss that would be felt. Losing Barr would be a big loss for this administration. OK, he just because not only does he have the gravitas and the, and the skill, he has the backbone He's not going to get pushed around by the libs. Look at John Roberts, Supreme Court judge, supposed to be a conservative. No, nah, he's not. He, you can't trust constitutionalism with, with Chief Justice Roberts. He doesn't like reading mean things about himself in the New York Times editorial page. That's all it takes. Yeah, so he takes the kind of middle path, gives the libs what they want. Attorney General Barr is like, nope, bring it on. I'm going to do what I think is right, what is in keeping with the law and constitutional duties and justice. Not going to bow down to the libs because they shriek and scream and whine and plead and threaten. So you want Attorney General Barr in this role. Trump, I hope, understands that that loss would be keenly felt. Now, the Attorney General spokesperson uh, let out a statement last night that Barr is not planning on resigning. But you see, this is this is now a controversy that has been has been really exaggerated and exacerbated by the media. That, that's what they've been doing here. They've been trying to create a division in the administration. Russia collusion, special counsel, failed. Uh, impeachment and removal, failed. You know, they have these storylines that they use as opposition narratives against Trump. And they, right now, they're in a little bit of a, a little bit of a barren period for that. They, they don't have anything. So that's why, oh, now they've got this. This is all over a minor legal issue of Roger Stone's sentencing. And what Trump does, and this is what you have to see, this is where there is some, you know, people always joke about not 3D, but 8D chess that Trump is playing. By doing these pardons, he, he reminds us of a, a whole bunch of things. And he gives the opportunity for us to have a broader conversation 
about the politicization of the DOJ, about how there's a two-tier justice system where Democrats get treated one way and Republicans get treated another way. By doing these pardons and commutations, he shows us that, one, this whole controversy over Roger Stone is absurd because if the president wanted to, he could just pardon Roger Stone entirely. Wouldn't, wouldn't spend a day in jail, doesn't have to deal with the criminal justice system anymore for any of these charges. So given that, that he can do that, what are we even talking about with how he ordered Barr to ask for a lesser sentence of a judge who is completely within her rights, the judge on that federal trial, to ignore entirely the government's request? That's what all this is about. You have to remember that. All this, all the Trump, I mean, there's stories now about Trump as an authoritarian. The Trump regime is a story in the Atlantic. Authoritarian? I mean, libs, they, they take everything to the top of the scale. You know, the dial always goes to 11. There's never just like, hey, we don't like this, but, you know, fine. It's always, oh, it's the end of the republic. I don't know how many times we can hear about something being the end of the republic, only to find out that it means either nothing or that libs have completely exaggerated the whole thing before they should expect that we will ignore them. Because I think we're already there. I don't think we're at a point where the lib hysteria and frenzy around everything that Trump does should be treated with, with any seriousness by, by any good faith individual. They're just, they, they lose it every time. Oh, it's all the sky is falling. It's not true. Everything's actually going to be just fine. In fact, the country's doing fantastically well. I think you may be able to make a strong case that this is the single best time in the history of this country to be an American. You could make that case. Given our relative prosperity, security, safety, uh, you know, just everything. Medical care, access to food, access to housing. I mean, now I'm going to talk later in the show about things that need to be addressed and the middle class pressures and regulation that is limiting the housing supply and there's certainly bad you know need to secure our borders all kinds of bad we talk about the problems all day long i just like to give you the proper context for what it's re what's really going on in the country right now because the media is lying to you constantly creating this foreboding narrative of of imminent despair and collapse because they're not in power their people aren't in power and they can't stand it so trump gives these pardons and commutations Shows that if he wanted to pardon, if he wanted to pardon Stone, Manafort, Flynn, he could just do it. Not reviewable. He has he has the full power, and it's a reminder to all the libs out there. He is the commander in chief. He is the chief law enforcement officer of this country. I saw some journalists were they were snickering at that. They thought that was like hilarious. I, I really, it's amazing to me. Journalists are among for for people who think they're a certain degree of, of intelligence and wisdom, journalists are the furthest from their own expectations, from their own uh, views of their ability of, of any profession. I mean, journalists think they're really smart, and most of them are total dumbasses. And I, I mean that. They are ignoramuses. They spend way too much time thinking about, you know, who that's a third-tier Hollywood star will retweet them and how much hairspray they have before they go on MSNBC. That, that's what most journos today are really doing. They're not reading, not learning, not providing worthwhile information. They're all just part of a propaganda machinery, a narrative creation industry dominated by the left. That's what journalism really is. 
Trump exposes them once again because then they, they freak out when he's doing something that he is clearly constitutionally within his rights to do. Trump can fire an ambassador for any reason or no reason. Trump can pardon someone for any reason or no reason. He's allowed to do it. He has been empowered by the people of the United States to do that. And then there's this other connective tissue between these different cases. The swamp prosecutors. There are a whole bunch of them out there. The swamp prosecutors that include people like, he referred to him as Fitzpatrick. He meant Fitzgerald. Uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, so it's easy to get that confused, who is among the very worst federal prosecutors in the country when it comes to doing the dirty work of the Democratic Party and pretending that it's justice. Patrick Fitzgerald, for example, went after Scooter Libby in in just a, a heinous abuse of power that was clearly a political hit. Libby did not leak the name. We knew that from we knew that from the beginning, and you still have. I mean, I got into a little tiff once with uh, with fake Tapper over this one, and I was right, and he freaked out because even other people had to admit who know the facts. I was right. Scooter Libby did not leak anyone's name. It's not possible to leak a name that has already been leaked in the public in the first place, right? If, if everyone, if people, if someone's already printed a name, if it's already known by journalists, you're not leaking a name, and he was never prosecuted for leaking the name because. He first of all, he said, I don't remember. I, mean, I think the guy told me first. And it was a he it was a he said, he said with Tim Russert, and they couldn't prove one way or the other. Ridiculous. Absolutely but but Fitzgerald, though, he was looking for a scalp. So he went after Scooter Libby, trying to take down the Bush administration. He also went after Conrad Black, the conservative publisher, very wealthy guy. And Conrad Black, some of his charges were thrown out by the Supreme Court for being overly vague, overly broad, honest services fraud. In fact, the way that Fitzgerald went after Conrad Black was so broad that Justice Scalia asked when the Supreme Court was reviewing that case, so is it honest services fraud if a CEO you know, gets a better table at a, at a restaurant? And then because then he might be more inclined to engage in business with that with that restaurant or that restaurant chain going forward. Is that honest services? For, and, you know, the government prosecutors are like, well, uh, you know, yeah, they didn't have a real answer because honest services fraud was just when we don't like what someone's doing and we want to make an example of them when they're a conservative or a Republican. Uh, that's when we pull out the honest services fraud charge. And then you look at Blagojevich. I find it fascinating. You have all these people that oh, Blagojevich is so corrupt and he's the swamp. Yeah, he was doing some pretty gross stuff. It wasn't wasn't good. Uh, To say that he was trying to sell a Senate seat, though, is not really accurate. I mean, that's what he said. Very stupidly, he said this on an open line that was being recorded because they were using the same tactics. Uh, The federal prosecutors were using the same tactics you would expect for like a mafia case. But they had because they had his home phone, they had his work phone recorded. And he said, yeah, Senate seat's a valuable thing. And We all know that that's what they went after. But that was how they sold the case. I've actually read the indictment because I do things that other journalists don't do, like read. And it's really difficult to follow exactly what's so bad that, you know, there's this guy was talking to this other guy and they were trying to hook some guy up so that maybe down the line they'd get a kickback or something. I mean, it's slimy Chicago politics. But if you looked at the indictment, you said, okay. This guy should have been kicked out of office, no question. This guy was guilty of some corrupt stuff, but we're talking about at max it was $180,000 that had really exchanged 180,000. That's 
and the corrupt. I mean, Hillary Clinton doesn't get a doesn't get out of bed to have a glass of grapefruit juice for one hundred eighty thousand dollars, right? You want to talk about corruption? You got to pay a lot more for buying Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation than one hundred eighty grand. And you know, yeah, maybe he should have been removed from office, but a couple years in prison, maybe you know, two or three federal prison. This guy's ruined. Never gonna have a career again. Fourteen years. You send this guy away for 14 years? Who's the victim? You know, who's going to go into the court teary-eyed saying, no, Blagojevich must pay for his crimes? The state? Patrick Fitzgerald? Fitzgerald, by the way, very close with James Comey. Buddy, buddy. What else do you have to know? Anybody who's friends with James Comey is really close with James Comey is beyond suspect. We already, we know that. So that, that really tells you all you have to know. And James Comey is the guy who came up with such a novel theory of prosecution for Martha Stewart. I'll tell you about what that is in just a second. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So James Comey's a U.S. attorney, and he's trying to make a name for himself. Martha Stewart gets a phone call from her broker to dump some stock, and she's scared because she figures, oh, am I in trouble for insider trading? So she lies. Not only do they prosecute her for lying about a non-crime because it wasn't insider trading, her broker was just saying, we got to sell. Maybe he had inside information, but that's not on Martha Stewart. And uh, not only that, but but James Comey's theory of that crime uh, or theory of that case was that by Martha Stewart saying she was innocent, she was engaged in fraud because that was propping up the stock price of her company. Uh, th- that's such an absurd stretch, but it's for a power-mad prosecutor, which is what Comey is, what Fitzgerald is, what, what Mueller's team was. Trump, see, by bringing this all together, by bringing up these pardons and commutations, it reminds us, oh, wait a second, the prosecutorial swamp is deep and full of terrors. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I do make his job harder. I do agree with that. I think that's true. He's a very straight shooter. We have a great attorney general, and he's working very hard. And he's working against a lot of people that don't want to see good things happen, in my opinion. That's my opinion, not his opinion. That's my opinion. You'll have to ask what his opinion is. But I will say this. Uh, Social media for me has been very important because it gives me a voice because I don't get that voice in the press, in the media. I don't get that voice. So I'm allowed to have a voice. Two very important points made here by the president as he gave a an impromptu press conference on the tarmac last night. One is that, uh, or yesterday in the afternoon, he knows that his attorney general is incredibly effective. Uh, he understands, I think, that this attorney general has probably saved in some ways that I, I, I've said to you that it was it was Bill Barr who understood the game that the Mueller team that Weissman and the little angry Democrats assembled around him they understood the game that they were playing the politics the soft coup attempt uh, Barr stepped in and said not on my watch you're not playing that game here you're not using the DOJ as a tool of the Obama Hillary DNC to oust a sitting president because you don't like him. I'm, I've said it before, Jeff Sessions is a good man. Jeff Sessions uh, probably would have just let them release the report as they wanted, not have gotten ahead of it and said, we've already looked at the charges. Because remember, they, uh, you know, they left it open-ended so that then Congress could pick up the baton right away. Well, no, the Attorney General Barr stepped in and said, oh, no, 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 this is our call. 
This is the Department of Justice. I'm the Attorney General. No crime. Now, the Congress can take this up and pretend there's a crime if they want, but that's not going to go very far, is it? So it really mattered. Uh, Bill Barr may very well have saved the Trump presidency because can you imagine if, if we had if we dragged through the Russia collusion nonsense with Congress and oh they would have held hearings forever because that's they've packed so much into that conspiracy theory. There's still people who believe it all over the place. Crazy Democrats, crazy libs who really believe this stuff. It's just nuts. But that's that's where it is. Um, but Trump's point on social media is also really important. There's a recognition, I think, that this president not only is able to fight back against media, stand up to media in a way that no previous Republican president ever has, but that with this president, you also have the first Republican president who uses the digital era we're in to his advantage. He goes right to Twitter. He takes the fight to the opposition. It used to be, you know, if you were looking at, let's let's say, you know, George H.W. Bush, go back even further. You know, he had to he had to agree, you know, his White House would have to sit down with or have a conversation with ABC News executive producers about when they're going to do the interview and all this. kind. Yeah, he could hold a press conference. But, you know, how how many press conferences are really going to hold the president to sit there and be like, oh, I just saw this. Boom. Here's a tweet. This is what I think. Now, I'm not saying that can't that can't be a double edged sword sometimes. But his ability to take the message directly to the people is also President Trump's ability to take the fight directly to the political opposition without the filter of the media. You see, the mainstream media is losing relevance all the time. Now, this isn't something we can celebrate too much because the digital platforms, YouTube, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they lean left as well and in some ways have more pernicious, uh, have more pernicious ways to skew the debate, right? Oh, it's just the algorithm. We, we know that this is something we have to be on guard for. But the power of the three-letter news agencies is not what it used to be. And they know it. And that's why they're scrambling to uh, spoon feed their constituency of liberals this constant, this fraud of, oh, we're just news organizations, man. We're not pushing an agenda, which we all know is 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 ridiculous. But that is what they say. Um, the attorney general, though, so anyway, that's an important point about, about social media. Attorney General Barr, I really hope, stays in this role, and I hope that Trump shows him the respect that he is due because Trump needs this guy right now. Let's not give the Democrats some some lifeline for their crazy where they can resurrect some criminal charge against him or you know more people within the DOJ conspiring you know, there are still deep state holdovers from the Obama administration all over the federal government. That hasn't gone away. That hasn't changed. You need people in charge who understand the laws, the regulations, the culture of these institutions, and also will, will not let them be weaponized against a sitting president. That's the, you know, that's the attorney general. Look at, by the way, how much quieter some of these places have gotten, you know, since Clapper is gone, since Brennan is gone. You, know, you, you don't have... People coming out of the out of the woodwork the same way as they used to. I mean, there was the whistleblower at the NSC. Sure, Not, that's what I'm telling you is that they're still out there, but it's they've been put on notice. Especially with we have to remember the Department of Justice is what would oversee any criminal leaks in any of those uh, three letter intel agencies. Is what would oversee uh, any efforts to violate the law in order to take down the president. 
So having somebody, having somebody as the attorney general, you can really trust them. By the way, the media all freaked out about this. Did they care when JFK had Bobby Kennedy as his attorney general? Oh, please. They're frauds. Total frauds. I, I really just just don't listen. There's so many ways to get your information. Listen to honest people. Yeah, that means me. There's others, too. But I think I'm the best nonetheless. But don't listen to these these TV journos at these places that are pretending that they're being honest with you all the time. It's just an, it's an insult to all of us. Um, President Trump understands what Barr is really all about. Play 14, producer Mark. He's a man with great integrity. The attorney general is a man with incredible integrity. Now, just so you understand, I chose not to be involved. I'm allowed to be totally involved. I'm actually, I guess, the chief law enforcement officer of the country. But I've chosen not to be involved. But he is a man of great integrity. But I would be, I could be involved if I wanted to be. That's true. The libs can freak out about that as much as they want. But what he says is true. The president of the United States, there, there's no prohibition on the president talking to his attorney general. There's a there's a tradition of impartiality of the DOJ, but that's always a judgment call. And at the end of the day, what it would really turn what it would really turn into is a, a decision by people who work at the Department of Justice to say that the president's request or the president's ask is is not uh, is improper, and then they, and they have the opportunity to resign. But they don't have the opportunity to obstruct. They don't have the right to say, oh, I'm just I'm going to stay in my role and just not do what the president says. No, if the president gives you an unlawful order as the attorney general or the same would be true in the military, right? Under UCMJ, you have to follow orders unless they're unlawful orders. You know, if someone says go out and and you know execute a bunch of civilians, you don't get to say, well, I was told to do this. No, of course not. It has to be a lawful order. Attorney general, in a similar way, would be able to reject an unlawful request by the president but his his only sanction really or his his only response recourse would be to resign so the president's correct he is the chief law enforcement officer and there is no real prohibition on him getting involved in cases as i've said there are hundreds of thousands of federal criminal cases i mean the, the system is dealing with all this so we're really just talking about a few high level very political cases does anyone think, by the way, that Obama had no say in what went on with the Hillary Clinton email investigation? Yeah, we're going to believe that was totally impartial. There were no uh, behind closed doors discussions with the uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch and President Barack Obama about that. I mean, I'm not saying I'd ever be able to prove that that happened. I'm just saying I will never believe that that did not happen. Never. Never. Oh, oh, they were so careful not to do that. So she spoke to the husband and former Democrat president, of course, Bill Clinton, the husband of the person under investigation days before the final announcement was made that there would be no charges. I wonder what kind of a deal was made there. Nonetheless, with the reality of the presidential power, it should be clear to people, especially those who make a living talking about and analyzing the news. Rachel Maddow over at MSNBC had has this to say about the president doing things that he is explicitly allowed to do, like pardons and commutations. Play 22. So they'll figure out a way to use the Justice Department to disadvantage a particular Democratic candidate in the primary, or maybe to disadvantage a few of the Democratic candidates in the primary, so that the president can have more of his favorite choice as to who he wants to run against in the general. I mean, I realize that scenario is crazy in the sort of longtime arc of American history, and certainly since we supposedly learned our lesson in Watergate, right? 
The president using American law enforcement and the Justice Department with the help of his attorney general to target his political opponents, to choose his opponent for the, de- for the general election, to undermine his opponent in that election. I mean, that is dystopian, over-the-top, road-to-tyranny stuff, I know. But it kind of feels like that's pretty much what it's come to, just in terms of what we've learned and how they've behaved just since the end of the president's impeachment trial, right? Roughly since Iowa, what we've learned. And I mean, I'm aware that there are rules that are supposed to prevent this sort of thing. What the heck is she talking about? This is a new, they think, I guess, opinion anchor at MSNBC. At least they're more honest than CNN. But here's a, a TV news opinion anchor who is paid like $15 million a year or something insane like that, uh, saying that we're on a dystopian, over-the-top road to tyranny based on what? And really, ba- based on what? That there's a uh, there was a request made from within the DOJ not to send Roger Stone to prison for so many years? Honestly, Roger Stone should get probation. He shouldn't really go to prison at all. He should, you know, has a felony conviction and they should put him on probation and say, if you do anything else that's dumb, you know, we're going to put you in prison. But the guy's 67 years old. He's a threat to no one. He's just kind of a strange guy. And he never should have been involved. He never should have been brought into this sham investigation anyway. Right? It, it should not have happened. That That's road to tyranny stuff. Does Rachel Maddow really believe that? I'd like to think she's smarter than that. She's always, from what I understand, been viewed by people even who disagree with her as as, as intelligent. Um, I don't know how it could be. I don't know how she could believe something so stupid and so completely lacking in evidence. Road to tyranny stuff. How the president's allowed to pardon people. The president's allowed to commute sentence, uh, sentences. Do Democrats really sleep better at night knowing that Rod Blagojevich is rotting in prison for another six years? He's already been in for eight. Was it road to tyranny stuff when Chelsea Manning, who betrayed his country, uh, when Chelsea Manning betrayed his country and then Obama commuted after six years of like a 20 plus year sentence? Was that betraying the justice system? I mean, you may not like it. We can complain about it. But Obama was completely within his rights to do that. No question. Obama was within his rights. So what are we really talking about here, folks? I mean, the left is so insane that they are making accusations, allegations that I can't even begin to explain really where the evidence is for this because they're delusional. I mean, this is delusional now. Road to tyranny stuff from Trump. What has he done? This administration keeps on getting judicial challenges that eventually go in the administration's favor because the people that are abusing the law are the leftists. But they refuse to see that. They'd rather hear... uh, pompous, ridiculous speeches on TV from left-wing anchors who are saying that we're on the road to tyranny. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I know you've seen what's been online, the vicious, vicious threats and things they've said, the, the misogynistic things they've said referring to the, the women who are leaders of the culinary union and the things that they've said about them. And, and actually, they've received death threats. I mean, this is way, way, this is Trump-like, way over the line. And I think Bernie has to be, he has to disavow this. He has to say, I disassociate. I don't want any of those people being with me. 
Can you imagine if my supporters did that, what you'd be expecting of me? I can tell you this. Bernie bros are the worst. Of all the Democrats out there, the person with the craziest, nastiest, most insane, most absurd, most ignorant supporters is Bernie Sanders. You know, a lot of people support Joe Biden who are kind of, eh, I'm a Democrat and, you know, I, you know they just say I, I believe in helping the poor and a women's right to choose and the kind of bumper sticker slogan stuff that Democrats tell themselves makes them better people. Climate change. You know, OK, whatever. The people that support Bernie Sanders like, you don't understand, man, there's like a revolution coming. And if you don't get on board, bro, like going to have to bust out the guillotines for the patriarchy, man. Like they're crazy. There's a lot of that. That's not a. That's not a little bit here and there. I mean, the people, a lot of the people who are Bernie supporters, and I see them uh, showing up all the time on social media. Some of the more prominent ones too are are radicals. They're not, and, and I don't say that just as a disparaging term for the extremism of their views, although that's also the case. Uh, they're radicals in that they embrace that. They like that idea. They think of themselves as the, uh, the sort of Jacobins of America. Uh, that they're about to they're about to bring about. A transformation, a real, a, a sudden and momentous transformation of this country into something where uh, envy is a dominant is, is a dominant factor in politics and the power structure. People that are envious of others are going to be able to tear them down. They're not looking to make things easier for everyone to rise. They're not looking to make things uh, more prosperous across the country. They'd be happy with, you know, this is like the old Winston Churchill quote. That capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings, but socialism is the equal sharing of misery. They, they'd rather have everybody pulled down, everything more difficult. And keep in mind that the people that you can pull down are the people that are building, the people that are growing, doing more, making good decisions, maybe getting a little lucky, but also putting a lot of hard work. And they're becoming well. The super wealthy, will they, they because there's no government mechanism to pull from them that has ever been successful. Uh, at least not in this country. I mean, we could look back in history. There's no government mechanism to pull from them that's not also going to pull from the people who rely on them. You know, if you if you were to make, uh, you know, Steve, I mean, no, I was going to say Steve Jobs, sorry. If you're, rest in peace. If you're going to make Jeff Bezos, sort of trying to think of, worth $10 million instead of however, you know, $80 billion or whatever it is right now, if you were to seize all that money into government assets, guess what? A lot of people would lose their jobs. Stock price would, would crumble. That would affect... I mean, Amazon is such a big stock, it, it would affect the price of various indexes that people hold for their 401ks. There'd be huge downstream effects of that. So the soak the rich strategy is just this is an envy strategy for people who don't understand economics and also just are, are desperate for power. So the people at the top promise that they'll pull down those who have been too successful or things have been too good for them. And the people that are that are the believers in that feel this this surge of virtue feel this surge of we're the we're the revolutionaries we're the good people and they are not encumbered by things like facts and math and history and uh-uh it's all about feelings for the sanders supporters thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iheart radio app or wherever you get your podcasts what we're going to do now is take a little walk to the polls. People ready to walk a little bit? You know, I think back now, you know, I think back, some of you may 
be familiar with Nelson Mandela? Remember that? And his fight for freedom in South Africa? And people marching to the polls. I'm thinking about the civil rights movement and people marching to the polls. Well, we're fighting to change America. Let's go out. I think the polling booths are pretty close to here. Is that right? Student Union building? All right, let's take a little walk. Let's vote. Let's change America. Let's do the thing where we compare ourselves to a much more important and momentous movement in history because raising taxes and ruining health care is somehow a great moral crusade. That's what Bernie Sanders wants you to know. Uh, This Bernie Sanders Bloomberg situation is the most fascinating dynamic in American politics today apart from Trump himself, but that's been going on for quite some time now. It's stunning to watch this play out. First of all, I I think that now the establishment has quietly allowed itself to shift from Bernie versus Biden to Bernie versus Bloomberg. That's that's where this is. Uh, You look at the national polls. I mean, Bloomberg has spent more money already after a late entry into the presidential field, has spent more money than Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Biden, Bernie uh, combined. All of them. Already. Very interesting story today also in the Wall Street Journal about what when you're really willing to spend that kind of money, what you can do. Bloomberg now is hiring people who uh, they're paying up to $2,500 a month and they, the, the idea is that they're campaign employees, but really what they're doing is leveraging their own social media networks, their existing social media network, to post pro-Bloomberg stuff. So, you know, your friend, your friend Bob, hi, Bob, your friend Bob could, uh, I don't know why, I'll just like, uh, just, let's just let that word go, I'll just, Bob seems to be my go-to, uh, he could very well post something on Facebook that you see that's a Bloomberg Bloomberg bumper sticker of one kind or another. And you don't really recognize this, but that person is being paid by the Bloomberg campaign. So this is a way to just magnify the reach. It's creating, it's buying grassroots digital support because it, it will be in your social network. It's not going to be a paid advertisement by the Bloomberg campaign, it's going to be some guy that you know saying, I like Bloomberg. Isn't Bloomberg great? Mayor Bloomberg, you know, he's going to be on the debate stage tonight. And he's going to just be like, why do I even have to talk to all these dummies on the stage? They're so poor and they're so dumb and they're so just, ugh. You know, Bloomberg's not going to win a lot of people over with his debate performance, I can assure you. And I do think the Democrats are going to focus so much fire on him that What they will do accidentally is make clear that he really is the Democrat, the the Democrat establishment frontrunner. By the way, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is looking more and more from I'm I'm looking at people who crunch the numbers. Bernie Sanders seems like he's going to be the nominee based on delegate count going into the convention right now. I mean, it's hard to think of how he's not going to have. The most the most delegates amassed by the time we get. But that's where Bloomberg comes in. What can you buy? You know, who wants to make a deal? Also interesting that Sanders Sanders may have cost uh, Hillary Clinton. It depends on the analysis you read of this. But Sanders may have very well cost Hillary Clinton the nomination. Uh, 
an interesting piece today by Jim Garrity over National Review. He talks about what political scientist Brian Schaffner has pulled together. And in a state-by-state estimate of Bernie Sanders supporters, this is what he found. Quote, in Wisconsin, 9% of Sanders voters cast ballots for Trump in 2016. In in Michigan, 8% of Sanders voters cast ballots for Trump. In Pennsylvania, 16% of Sanders voters cast ballots for Trump. That comes out to about 51,000 voters in Wisconsin. Trump's margin of of victory there was 22,000. Trump's margin of victory in Michigan was four. I'm sorry, uh, was 10,000. 47,000 voters for Bernie Sanders went for Trump in Michigan. That comes out to about 116,000 voters in Wisconsin, where Trump's margin of victory was 44,000. So even if you were to take Sanders voters who then went for Trump after going for Sanders in the primary and cut the estimate in half, it's still bigger than the Trump margin of victory. We don't necessarily always like to think of it this way, but Bernie Sanders may very well have cost Hillary Clinton the election. But I remind people this because we talk about how terrible Hillary is and what a bad, hello, what a bad candidate she is, and, all, and that's all true. But as we get down into what happened, but she did get three million more in the popular vote, which does is not the contest that's run. I understand that doesn't matter, but you do have to keep that in mind for the general election. The blue states are done. They're locked in for whatever Democrat runs. Bloomberg, Bernie, Biden, Buttigieg, a lot of B's, uh, you name it, Klobuchar, anybody. Although Klobuchar should probably try to remember the name of the president of Mexico. Uh, whoever the Democrat nominee is will win the blue states. So it's only these toss-up states. And Trump's margin of victory in these toss-up states was very small. He ran the table on them, which is why the Electoral College victory was so big. But the margin of victory was very small. Let's not forget this. I'm seeing analysis right now. People are saying that if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, uh, he might lose over 40 states. Nope. No chance. No chance. Zero percent chance that that happens if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. He's not going to lose 45 states or whatever. That's just crazy. It's going to come down to every single state that we can already point to and say is blue will be blue no matter who the Democrat nominee is. So it doesn't matter. Now we just have to look at the places that are in play. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, Nevada, maybe Arizona, but Democrats like to think that, although it's pretty red. You know, there are a few places that you could, New Hampshire, Trump was pretty close in New Hampshire the last time around. But these are very small numbers of people. When you look at the 320 million people who live in this country, 22,000 here, 15,000 there, that's a sports arena full of people and not even a very big one. That's like an indoor arena, you know, for like a, what's the, what do you call the NHL's like junior league? You know, what is is there one? Is it like the something HL? The AHL, the American Hockey League. Thank you. Yeah. That would be like an AHL game, right? It's, it's not that many people. So that can be the difference maker here, which is why when you look at Sanders versus is uh, Sanders versus Bloomberg, now you see how the numbers game is going to be very interesting for who he here's the the basic calculation for how 20, 2020 will play out if bernie is the nominee do you lose more moderate democrats suburban white educated uh college educated well, women 
Uh, that's a big demographic that they think will go against Trump. You know, if Bernie's a nominee, what do you lose? And then what do you gain? Same thing with with Bloomberg. And will Bernie voters vote for Bloomberg? Big question, because Bernie voters, a lot of them, enough to probably cost uh, the election for Hillary the last time around, would not vote for Trump instead of Hillary. So could you have a similar effect if if Bloomberg were the nominee or if Bernie is the nominee, are you going to have the more establishment Democrats, more centrist Democrats go and vote for a socialist? Or is it even possible that you'll have some centrist Democrats who uh, vote for Trump? You know, no one can really answer this, but this is what's playing out right now. This is the the uh, reality of the Democrat situation. And the establishment has basically said the Democrat establishment seems like it's willing to say that they're for that it's for sale. And also, I don't think we should let the media off without really impugning their credibility uh, for holding up Joe Biden as this shoe in. Joe Biden was going to be the nominee. Joe Biden was crushing it in all the polls. Oh, Joe Biden's great. And look at how they went to the mat defending Joe Biden and his son for what was clearly a gross arrangement in Ukraine with Burisma. Uh, but they they played this whole game and they focused a lot of attention on that. And just attention on the Bidens is bad for the Bidens. Attention on what they well, what Joe Biden is like does not help him. Joe Biden was and it's hard to overstate this, the enormous beneficiary of Obama being a highly uh, a beloved Democratic figure. Right. The Democratic Party still loves Barack Obama and the media was more in love with Barack Obama than any American politician in my lifetime. And I don't think there's any question about that. They never really didn't love. They liked Hillary a lot and they had comfort with her, but they loved Barack Obama. So Joe Biden, as his VP, was always spared any real scrutiny. You know, everything Joe Biden, oh, Joe's just being Joe. Ah, Joe's funny guy. He's good on the foreign policy stuff sometimes, we'll say, even though he's terrible. You know, whatever it was. They can't really do that anymore. They, they, can't, they can't prevent Joe Biden from being Joe Biden. So the more coverage, you know, once he's the front runner, they had to show us who he was. And this guy is just unimpressive. And really all along, he's just been hoping that, the, that African-American support, which is clearly a result of his association with Obama, that African-American support was going to really deliver the Democratic nomination to him. And yeah, South Carolina, he's probably going to win it, but it doesn't look like he's going to get the whole the, the nomination. And the, and the media was just so lacking. They were so desperate for a, a unified Democratic Party to defeat Trump that they went into this thing with blinders on for Biden. You'll notice I did not. I think I said Biden wasn't going to be the nominee so much that some of you were getting annoyed with how much I repeated it. But the good part is that it was true. Uh, speaking of scrutiny, uh, yeah, the good part about what I say is that I'm right. Uh, scrutiny, remember how much we heard about the need to remove Trump from office because he was not of sound mind, because because he was, he was crazy. That was what they were telling us. Uh, Bernie Sanders had a heart attack a few months ago and is 78 years old. I and mean, Bernie Sanders is going to be 80 really soon. And I know that there are some 80-year-olds who listen to this show who can probably still run six-minute miles and beat me in a push-up contest, and God bless you. Um, 
But Bernie Sanders is an old 78, and people do not age the same way. Some people in their 70s, you know, I mean, you know, I, I will not say what my, my own mom's age is, but, you know, she's in better shape and more fit and more athletic than most people in their 30s. And I'm almost 40, and she's my mom, so, you know, you can start to do some of the math there. You know, people do not age the same way. They just don't. And Bernie Sanders is a is a and a seventy or a seventy eight year old with some mileage. You know, it's time to replace the the carburetor and the 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 who's a what's it? I don't, I don't know much about cars, but you know the the engine. I know what that is. Uh, you know, the, the I was going to say the conveyor belt, but that's for an assembly line. I don't think that's in a car. Some kind of a belt in a car. Uh, but Bernie Sanders did have a heart attack recently, and the expectation has been that presidents, because it's a job that has a lot of stress, but stress, but also people should know if you're physically up to doing this job, is that you release your medical records. Here's what Bernie Sanders has decided. Play clip 10. In September, just last September, you said that you would release your medical records by uh, before the primaries. Uh, you haven't done that. You have released three letters from doctors, two of them cardiologists. One is your uh, your physician. Um, is releasing full medical records, is that no longer something? No, we have released, I, th- I think, Anderson, quite as much as any other candidate has. We received, uh, released two rather detailed letters uh, from cardiologists. And we received, uh, released a a letter that came from the uh, head of the uh, U.S. uh, Congress uh, medical group, the physicians there. So I think we have released a a detailed report, and I'm comfortable with what we have done. And by the way, you think I'm not in good health. Come on out with me on the campaign trail, (laughs) and I'll let you introduce me to the three or four rallies a day that we do. How's that? Just to be clear, you don't plan to release any more records. I don't. I don't think we will, no. No. That was a really long answer, a really long way of saying, we're not actually going to release medical records. Nah. Why? We all know why. Because he's old and he's sickly. Or rather, has real health concerns, at least, at a minimum. They brought this up with Dick Cheney, who was even the vice president. Oh, Dick Cheney, his heart, he can't be vice president. Look, I'm not sure even how much I, I, I think that the focus on presidential health, uh, you know, I, I feel like you never know. You know, somebody could have it. Somebody could have a stroke tomorrow and they could be in their in their 50s and seem like they're in great. You know, you never know. Right. So there's always risks here no matter what. I just think it's interesting that once again, Democrats have no principles because health is supposed to be something we can talk about when it comes to Trump, his mental health, his physical health. I've seen people talk about his obesity, they claim, as a problem. Trump looks great, but you know what I mean. You know, that, that, that's a, a criticism that will be uh, leveled from, from libs out there. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders just had a heart attack, and he's not releasing his medical records, and the media is just going to say, okay. Trump's taxes, we've had to hear about for years. There's like a maniacal fixation. Oh, we mu- the federal government already has his taxes. If there's anything bad and criminal in there, they already know. Oh, we don't see his taxes. Horrible. Um, Bernie Sanders' medical records, just like Obama's college records, which we still, to this day, have not seen. And I'm not some, I'm not a birther. I'm not, we, don't, we didn't see Obama's college records because Obama wasn't a great student. That's my, that's my analysis of it. And that was contra the narrative that he was a super genius and that everything he did was perfect. That's all. That's why we didn't see Obama's college transcripts. 
It's pretty straightforward. We're not seeing Bernie Sanders' health records because guy's not in great health and he's really old. An old 78. Not that being 78 makes you old, but he's an old 78. That's different. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I hope you can catch that from Liz Warren. When you've when you've got a mess and you really need it cleaned up, call a woman. That's what she said. It's waiting for tomorrow that she's gonna come out and you know when someone spills milk, tell the nearest female to grab a mop because she's great at scrubbing the floor. She's been doing it for her whole life. It's really right in her female wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good moment for this. You know, when there's something messy, when the when the kids have left all the cereal on the t- on the table, what do you do? You can't call a man. You gotta gotta get right to it and bring in a woman. Maybe make sure she's got her apron and her little little uh, rubber gloves for the cleaning that women do. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is not endearing herself here to. Uh, to her female voters, I think. With I like, I know it was a slip. It just was kind of a funny way to. But you know, when things are really messy, call in the cleaning crew, also known as a woman. Uh, she she meant it differently, I think, than it came out. But that was the way we saw it. Oh man, Elizabeth Warren still running for president, even though the chances of her being president are uh, slim to none already, and and more rapidly vanishing with with each. As each hour passes at this point. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. What you are saying is that in communities all over this country, often as a result of a housing shortage or gentrification, where real estate developers say, why do I want to build affordable housing when I can build housing for wealthy people? Rents are soaring. We got 18 million families in America spending half of their incomes for housing. That is totally crazy. So to answer your question, we're going to do a couple of things. Number one, we have a plan to build 10 million units of affordable and low income housing, which should open up the market and lower rents. Second of all, I grew up in a family that did not have a lot of money. I spent my entire childhood in a rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And that meant that my family, at least, we didn't have a lot of money, but we didn't have to worry about rents you know, going up by 10, 15 percent, which many Americans do. We believe that rent control is an appropriate tool nationally to tell landlords that they cannot simply jack up their rents to any rate that they want. This is one of the most clear examples of the damage that a socialist president bernie sanders would do to america that i can think of i mean this is this should be frightening to people what the implications of this are that bernie sanders is so ignorant of economics that he is so ignorant of the real world and how it functions that he thinks that national rent control is a good idea and more specifically it would be an answer to housing shortages. Let me just break this down. First off, for him to say that there's going to be a, a, a government policy 
of building 10 million new housing units. What do you think? Let me let me ask you this. How many of you would say, yeah, sign me, put me in one of those those government housing units right now? You, but without knowing anything other than just the government, you know, government uh, Sanders style is going to build you. I mean, I'm assuming probably would be apartments because that's far more cost efficient. We're going to stick you in a new apartment built by the Sanders administration. Let me ask: You think that's going to be a? You think that's going to be a place that you're really going to want to live? You think it's going to be really nice? Something you're going to aspire toward? I mean, I live here in New York City, where you have a a very uh, a surprisingly high percentage of New York City's population lives in either rent controlled or rent subsidized uh, or just government provided housing and it's one of the reasons we have such sky high rents here but for one thing we call them projects here housing projects uh, which initially were were supposed to be built for for veterans returning from world war ii and and now uh, there's a lot of places like stuyvesant town in new york which i believe was the largest residential development in the country for when it was built and it's still a very large uh, still a very large residential development but there are Projects in New York City that are built by what we call the New York City Housing Authority, NYCHA, and uh, they are some of them are in reasonable shape, but a lot of them are uh, dangerous, decrepit, and and really not places that you want to be. In fact, they have their own police force because so much crime occurs in the housing projects. Uh, the housing projects have their own police force, so. One of the issues with that is uh, with with housing projects, with government housing, is that it does not increase in value. It does not increase in value because you don't have an ownership society. You don't have a you don't even have people paying rent to be there. Usually it's a very small percentage of their public benefits. So you kick back a, a, a percentage of the welfare payments you receive in some of the projects here in order to stay in them, you know, so you're living in a, let's say a two bedroom apartment for the equivalent of 150 or $200 a month. The average rent in Manhattan in New York city right now for a one bedroom apartment is well over $3,000 a month. For those of you that want some sense of what the rents are like here. Meanwhile, 20% of, uh, of the city is in some form of, of subsidized regulated or rent-controlled housing, and rent control, they think, affects about a million people in New York City. Either they live in a rent-controlled unit or they have an immediate family member who does. And rent control, which is making its way to the Supreme Court now, is a ch- it's, it's effectively the government taking of par- a private property without due process, because all rent control is is people that want to be in elected office say, you can only charge X for your property. They don't do this with other w- with other goods and services the same way. Right. It's not you can only charge X amount for your sunglasses. You can only charge X amount for for milk. But this is a a price control. And guess what that price control does? It jacks up the price for everybody else who's in the New York City housing market. The scarcity we have in housing is not a function of the market. It's a function of government intrusion into the market. Developers want to make money. They want to make money, and there are plenty of ways to make money building homes for people who are working class. That is a real thing. But there's not a lot of money if you're going to build homes, and the government's going to say, well, you." the market says you could charge X for this for rent here, but we're going to tell you that you can only charge Y. 
This creates housing shortages in the five boroughs of New York City. It results in much, much higher, higher um, rents. And Bernie Sanders, though, is a beneficiary, was a beneficiary of this. And so what you have is anytime anyone says in New York City that they want to get rid of rent control, guess what? You have a, a single issue block of voters who will go to the mat. They'll do any because that's a huge benefit for them. Being a rent control department here. There are people that that they've done stories about this here in New York. There are people that live in some of the fancier neighborhoods of New York City, and they're paying eleven hundred dollars a month for an apartment that would rent for you know four or five thousand if it were on the open market. And there's all these games people play with. Oh well, you know they stay in the rent the rent controlled place, and then they have a family member who will move in, so they can't the landlord can't charge market market rent. Well, when landlords can't charge market rent, developers don't want to build new buildings because they're not going to make back the money. And so that's why the high end in New York City is where all the money has been going because you don't deal with rent control there. But rent control departments, it's it's a mess and it's unfair. That's what people don't understand. It's wrong. I never got to live in a rent. I would have loved to, you know, just in terms of the finances of it. Be a 20-something-year-old here in New York and live in some rent-controlled par- apartment in the village? I know people that managed to figure that out somehow. They got a family member, an uncle, or a grandparent or something who lives in a rent-controlled place, and they then take that over while the grandparent moves to Florida in retirement, and they pretend the grandparent's still on the lease. All these games that are played. Bernie Sanders thinks that na- national rent control would be a disaster. The reason you don't have more housing in Los Angeles and the San Francisco Bay Area, the reason these urban centers lack housing is because environmental lunatics prevent development from happening. Local regulations and zoning prevent development from happening. And government ordinances like rent control mean that there's not an incentive for builders. Now, in, in Washington, D.C., where I was, New new developments, new apartment buildings have to rent ten percent of their of their domiciles, uh, you know, of new domiciles, new apartment units, to low income low income residents. Uh, okay, well, you know, wh- why is why is that a fair law? Why are you you're effectively taking money from that developer saying you can make this and people would pay X for it, but we think there are people who should only have to pay Y because that seems more fair to us. This is always, always a uh, government intrusion into the marketplace at the expense of developers. And there are downstream effects for people. It results in housing shortages because it's less appealing to put your money and your time and your effort at constructing new units. I mean, that's it. I don't know what else to say. Bernie Sanders does not understand what the heck he's talking about. Or maybe he does and he just doesn't care. Do you really think you want to live in Sanders housing? Yeah. You think you think that's going to be really nice? So that's going to be a great a great deal for people and oh, gosh, 10 million units. Do you think about what the oh they'd have to use, you know, union approved labor and the, you know all the contracting and the this and the that and I mean that the astronomical costs of this. I mean, you know, the same way that the government can can pay $15,000 the Pentagon for a pen they're going to make the most expensive housing units you've ever heard of in your entire life, and they're going to be crappy. I mean, this is Bernie Sanders essentially saying, you ever driven in to the former Soviet Union and you see those big brick cement boxes that look like bomb shelters? 
I'll build those all across America. It's going to be amazing. He's basically offering to to build Soviet-style government housing for people, and he thinks that that's going to be, you know, that that's going to solve the problem. You know, people should have, people need to have skin in the game in where they live. You want people who are paying rent, who are working and giving some percentage of that income to a landlord who is incentivized to make the property nice. And the people who are living in that in that space, who are paying for it, want to make it nice. And of course, then we get into the ownership society. Same thing. I mean, you want people living, you want neighbors who are current on their mortgages and who care about their property value. And this is why people make all the decisions they do about where they live. And this is market-based. This is the government telling you what you can and can't do with your property, where you can and can't live, is a terrible idea. But this is uh, this is social engineering. It's virtue signaling, and it's socialism, and it's it's the it's the scary kind of socialism. When Bernie Sanders says we're going to have national level rent control, what that's going to mean is think about what that would do for the value of properties. Uh, you know, a lot of people buy properties, rent them out. And then pay the mortgage off over over time. Well, what if now all of a sudden the government says, "Well, that that property you bought, that a family's living in now, that's you know very nice, and they're very happy there, and they get to live there at a reasonable rent, market based rent. You're paying off that mortgage, and and you you know you're an investor essentially, but your your investment is why there is new housing popping up in these areas. Uh, now you're told, no, you can only take fifty percent of that rent. Oh, well, now you're your investment is worth effectively nothing to you. I mean, you have to sell the house, but think about what that's worth in a market where you can't rent it out. How does that affect I mean, this? I mean, Bernie Sanders is a nightmare. I mean, I know I, I've said, see, I only want Sanders to win the Democrat primary because I want America to have a look at socialism and to crush it once and for all. But I do have to take seriously the possibility, and there are some other conservatives who are making this case that Maybe that's too much of a risk these days. Maybe Bernie Sanders on the ticket turns into Bernie Sanders in the White House, and that would be that would be catastrophic for the finances of this country. That would be economically disastrous. You know, I don't sit here and tell you the sky is falling. I don't say that, you know, it's time to just re- retreat to the bunker and stock up on precious metals and ammunition and storable food and, you know, just get ready for the apocalypse. Although, by the way, those are all things that it's good to have on hand, uh, just in case. But... If Bernie Sanders becomes president of the United States, I'm going to have to change my tune a little bit because that that's a scary shit. That's not a situation that I think we can weather easily. That's going to mean a massive depreciation of assets you currently have. Your home will be worth less. Your 401k will get crushed. And he's going to be all, and all they're going to offer you is crappy government housing and crappy government health care. They're, they're going to offer you the Soviet Union, folks, here in America. That's Bernie Sanders' promise to you. I don't think it's one that you want. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Do you think it is impossible to be a Christian and support President Trump? Well, I'm not going to tell other Christians how to be Christians, but I will say I cannot find any compatibility between the way this president conducts himself and anything that I find in Scripture. Now, I guess that's my interpretation, but I think that's a lot of people's interpretation, and that interpretation deserves a voice. When Mayor Pete turns into Pope Pete, that's when he annoys me the most. And he does plenty of things that annoy me, but that's when he really, you know, it's a reminder this guy is is kind of a delusional leftist radical. 
in his own way. Uh, Donald Trump is the president who spoke at the March for Life. And I, I would ask, I would turn this question around. I'd want to know how can someone claim to be a Christian if they believe that a baby that is nine months old in the womb um, can be can be killed, can be terminated uh, on the whim of another human being? I mean, how, how can you claim that that is a Christian practice? I mean, it's effectively, it really, I mean, I think future generations will look back on this and say that there was the same way that we see what the Aztecs did, which involved uh, huge numbers of human sacrifices, including child sacrifice and rip, ripping people's hearts out. And that was all stuff that was done for religious reasons, mind you. Um, and we look back on that as in, in horror, as we should. Uh, oh, wait, you mean that all, all, the, all the native peoples of the, of the new Americas were not living in total harmony and everything? Yeah, I, I, I know the left wing version of this, but it's it's fantasy land. Um, I think people will look back on the Democratic Party's position on, on abortion in our current era and say that this is uh, it's an abomination and they will be shocked that this was ever something that people of high intellectual functioning and you know a lot of wealth and prosperity around them that they support it. And for Pete Buttigieg to play the, oh, I'm so Christian and people that support Donald Trump aren't Christian is really just it, it just gets under my skin because it's so gross. It's so disingenuous. Uh, you know, one one political party is for life and the other political party is for convenience. And we all know which one is which and we know which one Mayor Pete belongs to. Um, I also think that those who have supported Donald Trump who are devout Christians recognize that he's a politician and he is supporting their interests through policy. They do not. They're not voting for Donald Trump because they think that he's had such a great marital record. But I would also want to know who who really holds to that standard. The Democrats don't hold to that standard at all. I mean, look at Bill Clinton. I mean, the guy's a predator. Not, not only does he have a disastrous personal life, he's a predator. They were fine with that. They still defend it to this day. They've never really repudiated it at all because it was a means to an end for them. Well, we look at Donald Trump and say, if we're going to be in the if we're going to be in a political universe where You've just got to support people that represent policies that you believe in. Donald Trump is getting that done, and he's getting it done for Christians in this country. Evangelicals who maybe didn't think that Trump's record with, uh, you know, pinup girls or whatever in the past was something to be proud of. Maybe some of them don't care. Maybe some of them were bothered by it. Depends who you ask. But the ones that were bothered by it and said, but Donald Trump is going to be a president who supports constitutionalist judges who will protect religious freedom, who will protect life. Uh, they've been proven correct. They made the right bargain. They made the right assessment. And people like Mayor Pete, who try to think that uh, being Christian is empowering the state to take stuff from you, to give to other people, or else you go to prison, socialism, um, I, I don't see how that's Christian at all. In fact, I think that's plunder. I think it is taking Pontius Pilate and saying, hey, empty out the other guy's pockets and give all of his stuff to me because it's fair, I say. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
a border wall system for many years under previous administrations was very bipartisan, uh, non-political. It's only in this administration that a number of Democrats and others uh, choose not to secure our border. So the president's made the decision uh, that if he's not going to get the funding and resources from Congress, then he's going to use existing resources and existing authority, not only from the Department of, of Homeland Security, but also from DOD. And DOD has been a great partner in this. And so we're, we're securing that border. Mm -hmm. We're building that border wall system. Uh, and we're looking forward to finishing those miles later this year. It used to be a bipartisan thing to secure the border, or at least to say you wanted to, including building border barriers, walls, fences, whatever you want to call them. Here we have Chad Wolf, who's acting secretary of DHS, saying, look, you know, Trump is just doing what everybody until very recently knew was a good idea. But now the Democrats, the left, pretend that it's a terrible idea. Oh, a terrible idea, because they've become extreme on a number of issues. I mean, the areas where where the Democrats are absolutists, I mean, they could not be any further than they really have gotten at this point. Abortion, immigration, climate change, you know, they're embracing policies in these, and increasingly just general economics with socialism. But in those three areas... They're saying stuff that the Democratic Party of 20, even 10 years ago, would would have disavowed, disavowed. And that's why the president building this wall, again, it's not just the wall is useful for preventing illegal entry into the country, which it definitely is. And from the time when I've been down at the border, I was in El Paso, I was in San Diego with Border Patrol, talking to them, making rounds with them, doing ride along, seeing what's going on. It is quite clear that. A fence slash wall uh, slash wall system is uh, very effective and very helpful for the purposes of immigration uh, secure border securing and, and immigration overall. Uh, that shouldn't be even the least bit controversial, but they've made it controversial because Trump, because they hate Trump and they find him to be so disgraceful and distasteful in every way. And I do hope that the president manages to get a few hundred miles of wall built, new wall before the election because that's an important promise and just keeping keeping the promise is so important to the base but also that he was mocked and ridiculed by the left and by the mainstream media who said that there would never be that there would never be a wall and the president was fooling his voters that was what the allegation was the president was pretending that this was going to happen when in fact they had he had no interest he had no real desire to make this happen. I think that's very, very important. Uh, exposing, showing us, one, that Trump keeps promises, and two, the left was wrong and they were uh, smearing this president as dishonest, or at least assuming that he would be dishonest when they had no, no evidence to back that up. Um, but the immigration debate is going to become, I think, a much more central part of the national conversation as we get into the general election. Once we have a Democrat candidate who comes forward and we know who it is, uh, then we'll have to have a really interesting exchange between Democrat and Trump when we know the Democratic Party, at least as seen in the debates, has more or less said that they want to give health care to illegal aliens. And they'll say things like illegal aliens are more American than Americans. I mean, they'll say this. I'm not making this up. We've played the audio for you on the show. And then that brings me to what Democrats at the state and local level are saying and doing, more importantly, what they're doing. This is where we get into these sanctuary city policies. 
Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles. I'll be in Los Angeles next week for the Bill Maher Show. Make sure you guys, by the way, mark that down. Next Friday on HBO, if you can, I will be on the Bill Maher program, standing up for conservative values and America and Trump, and it's going to be spicy. So definitely plan to tune into that. Uh, But Mayor Eric Garcetti uh, has this to say about how his city views this is about illegal aliens folks they call them undocumented play five no matter their immigration status i want every angelino to know their rights and how to exercise them remember you have the right to remain silent you don't have to open your door to an ice agent that doesn't have a warrant signed by a judge you have the right to speak to a lawyer before signing any documents or speaking to law enforcement and if you need help finding an attorney, you can call 311 and learn more about our Justice Fund and other resources that offer legal support. And whenever possible, keep a record of everything that happens. Take note of an officer's name and badge number, of when and where you're being questioned, so you can use that information in your own defense. And most importantly, I want you to know you do not need be afraid. Your city is on your side. And rest assured, here in Los Angeles, we are not coordinating with ICE. That's the most important part at the end. Will not help federal law enforcement. Los Angeles will not help federal law enforcement at all when it comes to illegal aliens. I would want to ask Mayor Garcetti, because he's really representing the Democrat point of view, and they want to they want to recreate the California model of massive illegal immigration leading to an unbreakable Democrat electoral majority in the rest of the country. They only have to do it in a few states. If they do it in Texas, we're done. No more no more national elections for the Republicans, my friends. They're trying to do this. This is ongoing. If someone arrives in Los Angeles tomorrow and they're an illegal alien, they have no legal right to be in the country. If they just if they just came to America legally and they're in Los Angeles, is that their city now? That's a remarkable view, isn't it? If you have no legal right to be in a place, that polity, which is really that that political organization, the United States in this case, which is at its core a collection of laws, right? That's what really does. Without law, we don't have a country. If you were in violation of the law by being in this country, Los Angeles still wants you to know that it's your city, that you should be benefiting from all the services and the, the taxpayers' efforts. And that's that's stunning. I mean, Democrats are are walking down a pathway here. I don't think they really understand what the... Well, they understand long-term implications in terms of power, but they don't really seem to understand what this could mean for the country and for its coherence as a national identity. What does it really mean to be American if the Democrats are going to say, if you arrive here tomorrow and you're not legally allowed to be here at all, you're as American as any other person here? Well, I guess, what is what is an American? There's a bit you ask liberals these days, what makes a woman? They have a really hard time answering that because it's not biologically based and it's not just attitudes and behaviors because they say that that that's not that, you know, women, young women who act a certain way are just adopting cultural traits that aren't inherent in being a woman. So, you know, liking the color pink and dressing a certain way, that's all cultural. So it's not biological and it's not the way that the habits and the inclinations. So what does it mean to be a woman? Liberals can't answer this. What does it mean to be an American? Can liberals answer that question? Can they really answer that question? They they go as far as to say that illegal aliens are more American than Americans, and that's offensive to 
people that came here legally, our legal immigrant brothers and sisters, and people who are actually American. But this is the path where the Democratic Party's taken. Not only was uh, Mayor Garcetti, though, saying that, you know, proud of the fact that they're not going to help out law enforcement. Yeah. By the way, those federal law enforcement officers, they live in Los Angeles area, right? ICE has offices in these places. So they're residents. They're residents of the state of California, too. They're, they're there doing their jobs on behalf of the federal government, but they're not welcome. I mean, I remember Customs and Border Patrol, when I, when I was with them in San Diego, they were very clear that they felt like the state of California treats them, CBP, federal law enforcement at the border, like they're the enemy. They're the bad guys. It's uh, shameful stuff. But this is the, this is the Democratic Party. This is the, you know, the Open Society Foundation, George Soros sponsored, far left, socialist, bring back the Soviet Union nonsense we're seeing from the Sandernistas. This is what it turns into. Incoherence and destruction. Uh, but here's the uh, here's a loss. I think it might be the Los Angeles police chief. But it's, a, it's a cop from the LAPD who is, is standing there and having to reiterate the message that the mayor said. Play clip six. Our police force does not do the job of federal law enforcement. So I want to reiterate what the mayor just said. The Los Angeles Police Department is not assisting ICE in any way. We will not enforce immigration laws that are civil in nature and that fall under the jurisdiction of the federal government. Immigration is a federal matter. Safety is a police matter. And we're not going to mix those two. Yeah, tell that to Kate Steinle. Tell that to the thousands of people who have been murdered in this country by illegal aliens in recent years. Thousands. Killed in vehicular homicides, murdered by gang members, women, children that have been raped. It's not, not a safety issue, though. No, no, illegal aliens, that's not, it's not a safety issue at all. Maybe let ICE determine that. Because, you see, what they don't tell you is that when ICE is asking... ICE is not going around saying, hey, local law enforcement, go kick in a door and arrest some illegal aliens for us. They're saying, hey, that guy that it's almost always a guy, that guy that you have in custody, we want to deport him because he's a risk. He's a he's bad news. And the LAPD says, nah, we don't do we're not in that game. We don't want to help you guys. We're not even going to let you know he's here. It's a direct public safety threat. And to be co-opting law enforcement at the LAPD to do the bidding of far-left Democrats and put the public in jeopardy and pretend they're doing something that is lawful and decent and right just goes to show you how much the libs have perverted the justice system and law enforcement in this country in pursuit of their agenda, which is just power. It's just power. That's a, The Democratic Party owns and runs the state of California top to bottom now. Congrats. The state is falling apart. It's going to take a while because it's a very wealthy, beautiful place, but they're ruining it. That's the Democrat plan. Take wealthy, beautiful things that are working really well, introduce left-wing policies, destroy them, and blame everybody else and everything else while they're destroying them. And by the time it's clear they've destroyed it, it's too late. They're also trying to do it here in New York City with the Blasio's crime policies, but there's something else I want to get into, and that is uh, a story that you will not hear on the mainstream media about immigration at all. What, what's going on with wages? You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I've been talking for years on radio about the truth of Im- of, of immigration generally, but specifically illegal immigration and wages and how as much as it makes people make people feel 
like, you know, they're not as nice a person as they would otherwise be, or they, they want the virtue signal. Like, oh, we want the more illegal aliens, the better, better for everybody, better for the economy. I'm so welcoming. I'm so inclusive. This is the liberal mentality about all this stuff. And you get these libertarians who are like, oh, the economy grows with more illegals, the more, you know, we should just have open borders. And libertarians, I'm glad we don't have to spend too much time with libertarians these days. It's a little bit nutso, especially on immigration. Uh, you have recent data that goes to the heart of the do illegal immigrants and, and immigrants more generally depress wages, particularly for people who are at the lower end of the wage scale, people we would think of as working class? And the answer is, based on recent data, yes. Now, that shouldn't be surprising at all because labor is a function of supply and demand, just like everything else in economics, right? Everything is affected by supply and demand. And so when you have fewer workers in an area to attract more workers to either take jobs in that area or to come to that area, you have to raise wages. When you have a constant influx into a market of people and they're willing to take even lower wages, often because they're paid off the books, they're paid illegally, uh, that depresses wages. This is not really a complicated thing. And yet you will hear people try to repudiate this or repudiate it, refute it, not repudiate or refute, whatever, repudiate. (laughs) I just made a new word to refute it. Um, And they just do it based on emotion. Wages are up 3% right now, which is about the fastest in a decade. The wages of those without a high school diploma last uh, have risen nearly 10% in the Trump era. That's huge. That's a major, momentous increase in wages. And this is at a time when you have had a drop in net immigration, net migration to America. In 2019, it was 595,000, which is the lowest it has been in over a decade. And meanwhile, the number of qualified immigrants, people that are being brought in with special skills, that is rising. But it is low-skilled immigration, effectively illegal immigration, that has been dropping off. And guess what? Illegal immigration drops off and people who are in uh, construction, maintenance, drywall installers, housekeepers, their wages are rising. Oh, wow. You mean you mean all the stories we're told about how you know, we're you know we're a nation of immigrants, including illegal immigrants, and the more illegal immigrants, the better, and it's great for everybody. Yeah, it's it's great for wealthy people that want to pay their nannies and pay their groundskeepers off the books and very very little. It's good for them. It's not so good for the people who now have overcrowded public schools with illegal aliens who don't speak English, who don't have English spoken at home, who need English as a second language, and you know, uh, there's all these stresses on the system that get effectively socialized, but to some people, they get very, very cheap labor, and they like that. Oh, you mean when there are fewer legal immigrants in an area, you have to pay higher wages? Huh. This is, what could be more obvious than this, right? I mean, if, if you, if you're trying to find, if I were in a place here, let's say I was walking in New York City, and there, was, there are people looking for a radio host, if there are 10 radio hosts that are on the market at the time, you know, I might have some leeway to negotiate with a station if they really want me, right? If there are 1,000 radio hosts, I'm probably taking whatever they give me, and it's not going to be very good. I mean, I know this is a simplification, but it, it is a simple concept. It's supply and demand. 
And they've been pretending on the left and on the right, a lot of these Chamber of Commerce, Repu- you know, backed Republican think tanks will say, oh, but, you know, wages are... It's not true. The, the one guy who's done the most research on this, and I've, I've been mentioning him for years, is Professor Borjas at, at Harvard University. And it's really not that... They, they always try to, to game the statistics. They'll say, oh, well, wages went up or down nationally, and it has nothing to do with... Yeah, but you have to think of the wage scale... In localized areas, in in think of it in a county, think of it along the U.S.-Mexico border, for example, in one county in Arizona or one county in Texas. If you have a huge influx of illegal aliens to that county, guess what? Wages go down. When all of a sudden there's a drop in illegal immigration to that area, wages go up. It's not going to affect it. It's not enough to affect it at the national level. You know, the wages of somebody in New Hampshire aren't necessarily going to be affected by a big influx of illegal aliens to Arizona. But again, this is intuitive. We, we understand this. And this was a piece in The Economist. And it was just it was amazing to read it um, because, I mean, here, according to research by the Brookings Institution, five big metro areas saw absolute declines in their foreign born populations in 2010 to 2018. Wages in those areas are now rising by 5% a year. Nice, substantial wages. Decline in immigration, rise in wages. And by the way, they're talking about immigration overall, too. This is the reality of the world we live in. Supply and demand. It still still works. It's still real. Liberals can try to deny it as much as they want. Now, in this piece, because there's an emotional feeling of, oh, we want to be inclusive and we don't want to limit immigration to a- every other country limits immigration as they see fit. And that's fine. America is not allowed to limit. We take in a million a year on average. And, and we're and if we try to limit that at all or change it at all, then anyone who says that is a white nationalist and a racist and all these terrible things. Economics are economics, folks. There are fewer workers in an area. Guess what? Wages go up. There's a ton of workers in an area. Wages go down. This is just the reality. And Democrats can try to deny it all they want. But Trump has been right on this. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. All right, Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to email us. And please do. We love getting messages from you. And I hope that some of you have been able to tune into my now, a nightly show at 6 Eastern time on WOR, 710 WOR, here in New York City. It is a New York-focused show, so uh, to keep that in mind. And also, it's, does not ch- it does not change anything that producer Mark and I are doing here in the Freedom Hunt. Our show continues as is. It's just a fourth-hour radio because I can't get enough radio. I'm going to have to take on a fifth hour soon, maybe a sixth hour. What do you think? Yeah, do a local show in every market. Just exactly. Yeah, four hours a buck every day. Four hours a buck, you know, just everywhere. Maybe we can clone you? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. I mean, just, you know, who who wants their own buck in their own town? I think that'd be kind of fun. I show up there. I could do regional accents, yeah. too, you know? Why do a nationally syndicated like, radio show? Oh, yeah. gosh. Mm-hmm. I mean, Silly. I'm doing a show in Wisconsin, and I just uh-huh. love, oh, gosh. I'm from Oshkosh, and I love Wisconsin. You know what I mean? I get to do it. I make it happen. 
Better stop more uh, more stations will start doing this. Yeah, you know what I mean? Just start making Buck a national host and a local host. Woof. So I got that going on. Uh, let's get to this roll call, shall we? Douglas! Buck, if the plant-based foods crowd truly doesn't want to eat meat or dairy, why is that food made to look and taste like burgers and milkshakes? Interesting point, Douglas. I think that they would say... That the point is to get people to transition, but then keep in mind, even people I know who become full-fledged vegans, which I don't know how they do it, I don't know why they do it, but people who become full-fledged vegans uh, tend to continue eating, you know, patties that look like burgers and things that they're accustomed to from their pre-vegan days. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's that's interesting. Also... I've never come across a meat replacement that I didn't know was a meat replacement and that wasn't very good. I've had this uh, plant-based burger thing. I mean, it's okay. I've eaten a few of them. They're okay, but it tastes like a veggie burger. It's a good veggie burger, which does not compare at all to a burger burger. It just doesn't. And I mean, I'd be fine if it were otherwise, I would say so, but mm-mm, no way. Thomas, in another desperate effort to make Obama relevant to the growing prosperity of the country, the media and socialists insist that we are now that we are profiting now is the result of Obama's economic boom strategies. Ha! Neither President Obama or Trump can claim rights to this new economy. This is the result of the American people reclaiming their ownership of this country and the corrections implemented by President Trump and his administration to remove the obstructions imposed by the Obama administration and deep state. Obama worked to stifle progress. Trump worked to unleash the positive potential for growth and renovation that was oppressed for eight years. Obama has no legacy shields high. Um, okay, Thomas, I, I think we'll just let, we'll let, let that one speak for itself here, saying that, uh, the Amer yeah, of course, the American people are the ones creating the great economy. Trump has pulled some of the government intrusions and restrictions um, away, and that's a good thing. Uh, and Obama's I mean, people that are Obama supporters or just de I mean, Democrats that are now trying to claim that the good economy is the result of Obama's policies. Uh, and this is just it's just absurd. You know, at some point, the absurdity is too much. Right. You know, because we all also know I don't think any any honest person would tell you that if the can you imagine if Trump's economy was doing really poorly, we had high unemployment, a market that was really uh, it was getting crushed, bad things going on, housing market plummeting, or even just even just kind of moving sideways, no real growth, not in a recession per se, but just just kind of stumbling along. All you'd hear about is how terrible Trump is on the economy, how Obama was a genius, and the Democrats. But no, things are really good. So what do they say? Oh, it's it's Obama's economy. I mean, this is it's dumb. It's obviously not true. But then you also have to think, well, they're hoping to just fool a small enough number of not very bright people of, of low information voters to vote Democrat based on this lie. And then they can be in power and they don't care. That, and then the Democrats don't care that it was a lie. So, so that's where they are. Adam. Buck, on Friday, you spoke of old wrestlers. I can't believe you missed Andre the Giant. Shields high. Well, Adam, I mean, I just was thinking off the top of my head of wrestlers. But sh sure, Andre the Giant was was an incredible, uh, incredible entertainer in his day. 
And I, of course, always remember him for uh, The Princess Bride, where he saved uh, Robin Wright from the shrieking eels, if memory serves. And uh, if wait, producer Mark has not seen Princess Bride, right? I still, we got to make a list, man. There's some things, you know, you, you youngins. You you young bloods, you know you don't know some of the you know, great. If I do your list, what am I supposed to you know do my job? That's probably true. But do you Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You saw? Oh that yeah, one? I've seen that. Okay. Great movie. All right, all right. Breakfast Club. Of course. Okay. All right. So I mean, I'm not that worried about your your cultural. I watched Breakfast Club because I loved Emilio Estevez because of the Mighty Ducks. Well, that makes sense. Who's in the new reboot? By the way, they're There's rebooting it on Disney Plus. Of the Mighty Ducks? Yes. Not a movie, but a, a, a series. Is that the best hockey movie of all time? Um, or I is mean, Miracle me, better? Um, Miracle is a better hockey movie because it's an actual movie. It's not made for kids. Right. Like the, the Mighty Ducks have a soft spot in my heart because I watched it a million times when I was a kid. But right. Miracle is just a great movie and it's about uh, something that actually happened. Right. With 1980. 1980 U.S. hockey team. Yeah. Beat the amazing Russian team. Which was basically like a pro team pretending to be an amateur team, right? I mean, it's like state. no, you don't have to be amateurs to be in the Olympics. Oh, I thought I thought that that, that but point. they were a pro team, and the NHL didn't send their athletes. Well, back that, that's, then. that's what yeah. I mean, I'm saying. It was an amateur U.S. team against the Russians. The Russians who were a pro team and like the best team in the world. Uh. Not even just you know they would have beaten NHLers as well. By the way, I'm I'm sure if they had like actually drawn some real blood on some of those Russians and sure. put in a test tube, it would have like. You know, grown fur and teeth and become another separate human being. Like um, the stuff that they were putting in their athletes all the way up through the 80s. We'll never really know, but uh, there's a reason that some of the, you know, East German women's swimming team could bench like 350 and had uh, a lot of facial hair. What? No comment. What? I'm just saying. I mean, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's Which all makes these, the you know, U.S. They... team's feet even more amazing. Yeah. There's actually, there was, I remember there was that documentary came out a few years ago about the guy who exposed the Russian, the Sochi blood doping. Did you see mm-hmm. that? That was pretty interesting. That actually. was interesting, yeah. Yeah, because the Russians, man. Whew. And that was today's day and age. When, Rus- when Russians do, go yeah. bad, man, at the, you know, those KGB guys, this, this is going to be scary stuff. Also, because I've been watching uh, The Americans, so clearly that's on my mind. Dennis. Dennis writes in, in 10 minutes, you so elegantly cover the universal health care argument and point out every flaw and lie. I listened to it three times as it's that intriguing. I'd encourage all of your listeners who might have missed that segment to review it, especially those who believe that universal health care is what this nation needs. Unfortunately, as you say, it's the truth people don't want to hear and for sure the truth that Bernie doesn't want people to hear. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Thank you, Dennis. You know, I really mean this. If I thought that you would all be better off, if I really believed that you would be better off with universal health care, um, you know, with with Medicare for all, with these Bernie Sanders plans, I would say it. I mean, I, I've been willing to say that uh, pre-existing conditions. That's not a purely market-based thing, but you know, you really there there is a, a human impulse to make sure that when someone is born with a true pre-existing condition or there is a problem, we 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 as a society take care of that person, right? That's that's no one's fault. That's something that deserves uh, a. A group of well, that's something that deserves. I was going to say, what is this like Hillary stuff? It takes a village, but you know what I mean. It, it deserves a societal response. Um, I, I think that universal health care would be a disaster for all of you. It'd be a disaster for me. Um, I, I think that the medical system in this country is lagging behind a lot of other areas uh, where technology and the profit motive are making our lives better, cheap, better, faster, and, and easier all the time. 
the medical profession, you got a lot of a lot of stuff that's slow. A lot of you know, wh- where are the research dollars going? Is the FDA approving the drugs fast enough? Is there enough interest? You know, one thing that I remember hearing about was just from some people that worked at biotech, uh, had worked in biotech at various hedge funds. You get all these, you know, if you're super smart and really understand microbiology and drugs, you can either go in some lab and, you know, get paid, I don't know, maybe 150, 200 grand to try to come up with cures. Or you can be the guy that's advising some billion-dollar hedge fund about what biotech stocks to invest in or short and make a million dollars a year. And guess what? A lot of people with MDs and a tremendous amount of skill choose the latter. And that's not good for us because I, I want – there's so many drug, I mean, so many uh, afflictions and, and problems that I'm sure we'll be able – look, I mean, I've got celiac disease, and I – I cannot wait for the day when I can just, like a normal person, go and and eat one of those like chewy pretzels you can get on the street here in New York. I used to eat them growing up. I probably didn't realize I had celiac disease at the time. You know, I just want to do normal things like that. But there's not a lot of money for you know curing celiac disease. Is there a lot of money in that? Especially if you're going to cure people. If you're not going to treat them, take a pill, take a pill, take a pill, keep paying. You know, so there's problems here with uh, the medical. Uh, medical approach that we've got and anyway when was the last time you know you found out about something like oh wow we can cure that now it's been a while it's been a while um caroline hey buck i was looking through chinese youtube videos and their reaction to the coronavirus and i'm seeing a wave of anti-communist government anger the chinese people are furious about the mishandling of the epidemic when you combine that with the recent massive protests in Hong Kong, it's starting to look like this coronavirus may be their Chernobyl event that cripples the regime. It's becoming blatantly obvious that communism kills. And if the communist regime in China does fall because of this, it's a safe bet that North Korea is next. Anyway, just a thought. Love the show. Shields high. Carolyn, very interesting analysis. Uh, I would not think that this is going to topple or even greatly trouble the Chinese uh, regime's grip on power. They've gotten very, very good at uh, economic prosperity mixed in with political authoritarianism. And I don't see them I don't see them lose. Look at what's going on in Hong Kong. Yeah. Have the protesters won there. Not yet. Chinese regime is very good at this game. So I don't think that anything is going to come of it politically for them. But I could be wrong. Usually I'm not. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, more roll call here. John writes in to the Buck Sexton Show. Buck, besides the Communist Manifesto, what is a book I could read to better understand Democrats' beliefs? I'm strong in my conservative beliefs and principles, but for educational and debate purposes, would like to better understand the other side. Preferably something with historical aspects, as I suspect all of the writings today just sound like deranged pandering. However, I can't wait to read your book. Thanks, John. The book's going to be coming out in a few months, uh, Socialism Survival Guide. And um, it's a pretty good overview of a lot of things I talk about here on the show. It's really a 2020 election issues book in a lot of ways, but I I think it'll give you guys some great arguments to, to work with. And you'll enjoy that. Besides the Communist Manifesto, how do you understand Democrats? Uh, I mean, the best way to really understand Democrats today would just be to read the editorial pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, you know, that, that'll that pretty much show you where their party is, 
on any given day. I mean, those are left-wing editorial pages. If you're looking more for the political philosophy of the left, hmm, that's that's interesting. Um, you could read some of the early American progressives. Uh, you could read, uh, I was going to say, you know, Antonio Antonio Gramsci, uh, the Italian Italian socialist who was, you know, there, there's some different. You should certainly, if you've never read Rules for Radicals by Saul Alinsky, you absolutely must read that. You'll understand the Democratic Party and community organizing in ways that you uh, never would otherwise. Um, so that's very, very worthwhile. I have to think of more. I mean, there's so much Democrat stuff out there that it's hard to even find one thing. I mean, yeah, the Communist Manifesto, but you know, that's uh, let me let me give it a little more thought. I'll try to come up with what you should read to really understand the mind of the left. Keep in mind, I I have a an entire web browser. Uh, I I think it's my Mozilla or my Firefox or something on my computer, and the entire bar of all the different sites are all left wing sites. And I'll sit there and I'll go through and I'll read and I'll go through and I'll read. So that's why I can always make the left wing argument for you. I and mean, that's one of the things that conservatives like me separate ourselves from the other side. They can't make my argument. They don't know what it is. I can always make their argument. I know what their argument is. Um, even when their argument becomes in this era of wokeness and political correctness, essentially irrational and incoherent, I still know what their argument is. I, I can still make it for you. It's just I know that it's, it's an absurd argument that is being made. Um, let's see. Mike writes, Buck, I often find your political analysis right on the money, but I have to disagree with you about what is worse for the country. Bernie, the comrade Sanders or Mike, the nanny Bloomberg. Sanders ideas would either permanently wreck the country, as you say, or lead to civil war. But he's a fool. And I don't think capable of implementing much of what he talks about. Bloomberg, however, as is, as you say, a highly skilled administrator and is willing to violate, like Sanders, the Constitution to get his way. Bloomberg will be just as uh, as will be much better at eliminating freedom to suit his ideas and overinflated ego, whereas Bernie will just struggle to get most of his nutjob ideas implemented. He and his ilk will be overwhelmed by the bureaucracy they helped create, while Bloomberg knows how to run a large organization. We have to not just stop these two, but we have to start winning. In the marketplace of ideas with anyone ignorant enough to buy into their crap. Shields high, keep up the good work. Mike, I think your analysis is very is very compelling. I I I'm not saying you're I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh you could be right. I, I think that uh Bernie though, you, you gotta I always say leave room for crazy. Bernie's crazy. And he would use the power of the presidency to implement things as an as an executive. That would be unconstitutional, but the bureaucracy would go along with it. And I don't think that Congress would be an effective break on what he's talking about. So it could be either way. But, yeah, Bl Bloomberg is a more likely threat to your constitutional freedom. Bernie, I would argue, is a much more egregious threat to your constitutional freedoms. Um, and with that, fantastic soundbite. That is going to be the show for today, my friends. Maybe tomorrow producer Mark can tell us a story. I feel like we haven't heard enough from producer Mark today. He's very busy, though, making the show go along like the well-oiled machine that it is. And that's uh, we are thankful for that. That's going to be it today, though, team. So we will talk uh, tomorrow, same time, same place. Pass the buck. Share the podcast with a friend. Shields high.